Well, hello, D2 class. I'm sorry that we're on the third week in a row having to have an electronic class, but Amy and I had a scheduled time away already this week planned, and uh, I had no idea that we would have two weather weeks preceding it. So three weeks in a row online. Here we go. And I'm wanting to, so much to keep up uh, with our study, so I appreciate the fact of your faithfulness um, to listen and stay up with the class. The fact you're hearing this right now lets me know that you're you're staying after it, and so way to go doing so. Um, I want to encourage you in this that you know this is kind of my my personal life's work. I believe it's the job description I was given in the Bible as a pastor, and that is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so I um, take my job serious to to commit the things that were committed to me and give them to you as well. And so my hope and prayer is that you'll learn these things that uh, were given to me at some point and uh, be able to use them in your own personal study, but also to be able to teach others the Word. And I have no idea what story God's going to write in your life and where all that might be, but um, but that you just be ready to go, whatever God has for you, uh, in making disciples, um, to be able to communicate the Word of God and understand your Bible more thoroughly. So today we're going to begin on page number 37. I'm not going to go backtracking to the, the first 10 points that we have learned in principles of Bible study. Hopefully you've got all those dialed in. So today we'll just jump right into point number 11, the, the principle of teaching by word pictures. Now I will tell you that this is one of my favorite principles that I've learned in all the years because this opened up my Bible into a whole new world that I didn't even know existed. My Bible, quite frankly, was boring to me for many years and all the history and the sacrifices. It felt like rules and regulations and I just didn't see the point. Well, then once I realized the pictures that were in the Bible and how God is communicating his truth so that anyone can see it, no matter what age, wow, it just changed everything. So now it made my Bible so much more exciting, and I wanted to now discover what is it that God is actually communicating. So realizing that God is telling his story, his kingdom story, over and over and over and over, and I it's not the way our Western minds think. We think so linear, left to right, A, B, C, one, two, three, but that's not how God communicates the Bible. He communicates things on, more in an Asian fashion, which after having lived there, I get that a little better now, where it's all circular in the manner of teaching. So it's overlapping circles is probably a good way to say it. Or you just keep reviewing the same thing, and we're communicating the same principles over and over and over again through different stories, through different word pictures. And so, letter A in your notes today, page 37, the Bible is a picture book. And like little children, first learn from picture books. Matter of fact, the storybook Bible that I have for Hallianna started when she was really small, and I just began to tell stories. And it walks through the stories of the Bible that we would all know and be familiar with, but she, she could learn those stories at, at even a very young age. In fact, when we lived in China, the the first book, Bible book I would give my new disciples would be the storybook Bible that's a child's Bible, um, children's Bible, because they could see the pictures and it made more sense. And it was obviously in a secondary language to them, and but it was something that they could grab hold of, these bigger picture stories of what God's talking about. And so in the Bible, number two, these word pictures are discovered by comparing Scripture with Scripture. So this isn't the secret code and the Da Vinci Code of the Bible is trying to figure out the, the word pictures that are here. No, you'll see them when you compare things. And so we're, it's a discovery. 
Number three, Moses wrote about Christ by means of word pictures. Otherwise, there's no other way to understand what did Jesus mean in John chapter 5. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to John 5 and see this with me together. In John 5, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They are obviously not accepting him as the Messiah. But they accept Moses, they accept Abraham, they accept David, and they all that. And so watch what Jesus tells them in, in John 5, in verse 45. He says, Do you not think that I shall accuse you to the Father? There is no one who accuses you, or there is one who accuses you, and that's Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Well, in verse 46, he makes that statement, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But you don't ever see the name Jesus in, in any of the first five books of the Bible. You don't even see the name Christ. Um, so how did Moses do this? Well, he wrote about Jesus in, in a prophetic sense, of course, but it's in word pictures. It's, it's stories that are real human, actual stories that took place, but God is telling another story at the same time. And so we're going to illustrate a couple of those just to make sure we see it. But Moses doesn't ever mention Christ. Number five, word pictures make the Old Testament come alive. And it is true. Once you capture this understanding, it's like, wow, there's so much more going on in my Bible than I ever had any idea. Number six, this is what Stephen did in Acts chapter seven. He painted word pictures to show Christ in the Old Testament. Now, I encourage you to go back and read Acts seven. It's a long, long chapter. I didn't choose to do that for you tonight. But in Acts 7, what Peter or what Stephen does is he takes the religious leaders who are about to kill him that are upset with his preaching. And what he does is he takes these Jewish leaders on a history lesson of how God rescued and took Abraham out of Ur and ultimately leads them all the way to Christ. So he tells this whole story of Egypt as or Israel as he goes. And then you get to chapter 7 and verse 51, and he said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, there's here's what's interesting. They're circumcised in the flesh, but not circumcised at the heart. So they're uncircumcised in their heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now. Here's what he just let them know. I've walked you through all the story of the Old Testament and the prophets and all their words and how your forefathers have betrayed and even murdered the prophets. They did not want to hear about the just one who is coming. And he walked them through so they could see who is this just one. And now they have murdered the just one themselves. But not only that, they're about ready to turn around and murder another prophet being Stephen himself. And so... Stephen teaches from word pictures as well. And number seven in your notes says, just never forget you're a child. You are to mature in your faith as the aged, but at the same time have a childlike faith that you can still see the pictures. In other words, don't get so smart in your Bible, you're of no earthly good. And that happened in, even in the church of Corinth, if you remember where Paul challenged that church. He said, you know, you guys have forgotten the simplicity in Christ. You can't see the word pictures anymore. You're not... You don't have the childlike faith. You guys have gotten so smart, you're stupid. And so that happens to us in our Christian lives. And 
And we don't want to ever get to that spot. It's a danger whenever we learn Bible truths like this, that stuff that you don't see, you don't hear, and you're not reading about this in the modern commentaries of, of people's uh, writings today. This isn't famous stuff that you're going to hear in podcasts very often. This is just the nuts, of nuts and bolts of how to study your Bible. And so as a result, there's an arrogance that can come as well. We get puffed up because, we, well, we might see things and understand some things. And, man, if God's giving you wisdom and understanding of the Scripture and allowing you to see things, it's for your growth and maturity. Share those things with others as God gives you the opportunity gracefully to do so. But it's never intended to weaponize um, or to get put us on a pedestal. Not ever the point. And I have seen that and witnessed that. Quite frankly, there was a time in my own life I felt like that probably happened where I gained knowledge faster than my maturity could handle. And um, I didn't use it well. And so I, I can speak definitively that there was a time in my life that knowledge puffed me up and um, I needed to get poked with a big old sword to actually um, deflate. And God has a good way of doing that. So letter B in your notes, examples of word pictures abound. They're all through scripture. So, for example, number one, a picture of the crucifixion of Christ. So let's go to our Old Testament, Genesis 22, and see a snapshot photo of the crucifixion of Christ. Genesis 22, it's the account of Abraham taking Isaac, his son, up on the mountaintop to offer him as a sacrifice. So let's just watch the words, see the pictures. This is one of the most obvious ones in the Old Testament, but there's, there's many, countless numbers of them. Chapter 22 of Genesis, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, here's what you can take quick note. Here's a father who's going to offer his beloved, his only son on a mountain. So that uh, there's a picture right there. We can't miss it. So Abraham, verse 3, rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of the young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Now, the phrase third day, we'll learn later, but this is a big phrase in your Bible, that every time you see that phrase, a third day, something's as good as dead, but is going to be made alive. Well, we're going to observe that even in this moment. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship, and we'll come back to you. So there's that word, of, that first mentioned word, worship. First time it shows up in the Bible is Abraham offering his son his best, um, all that he has for all that God is. That's really the definition of worship. We see it here now. But he said, we're going to come worship and then come back to you. Now what? He just made a proclamation that uh, the son is going to come back, though I'm going up to offer him. What does that mean? Acts chapter, um, excuse me, Hebrews 11 lets you know that um, Abraham believed that even if he killed his son, that God would have resurrected him. And so it's another illustration here. We've got a crucifixion and a resurrection because he's going to come back. Number, or verse 6, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son. Now watch, here's the son carrying the wood up the mountain. He took the fire in his hand. Fire is a is an illustration of judgment in Scripture because God Himself, according to Hebrews, is a consuming fire. God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. God consumes things with fire. It's how He purifies and tests, but it's it's the judgment of God. 
So he takes this judgment and and the wood, but where's the lamb is, is the question. Verse 8, and Abraham said, well, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So they went together. Then they came to the place which God told him, and Abraham built an altar there, placed the wood in order. He bound Isaac, his son, laid him in the, on the altar upon the wood. And, and notice that his son is an adult male. I mean, obviously, Isaac could have resisted. He didn't. Isaac laid down on this wood. His father was able to bind him and place him there. And then he laid him on the altar. Verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad nor do anything to him. For now I know that you fear the Lord, fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then what happens in verse 13 is so huge. Because remember, Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. He just didn't know how yet. Is it going to be my son Isaac? Is it something else? I don't know. Verse 13 is huge. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram. A ram is a male lamb. Probably without blemish and without spot would be my speculation here. Caught in the thicket by its horns. What happened? You have a male lamb who has a crown of thorns on his head stuck in, the, in this thicket, and then Abraham took him and offered that male lamb instead because God provided himself a lamb. So here's a great picture. Is it a perfect picture? No, every picture breaks down and misses pieces and parts, but it's a snapshot photo of how you can see what God is doing because God wants to illustrate the story of his son paying the ultimate sacrifice for mankind for sin. That's why in Leviticus, we're all read through that in our annual Bible reading, and it's like, good grief, how many times do I need to read about something being uh, sacrificed and all the details of its body parts and put on a fire and do it this way and do it that way. Why? Because Jesus himself is the consummate uh, sacrifice for the Lord. All of those sacrifices together, he is each one of them and represented by um, those individual sacrifices. This particular picture is one of the clearest, cleanest pictures in the Old Testament, but they abound. Let me show you another one real quick. The picture of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God um, in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover Lamb. Now, just to put a note out in your margin, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Jesus Christ is our Passover. Christ is our Passover. Well, that phrase by itself in the New Testament would mean nothing if you don't go study the Passover in the Old Testament. Christ our Passover. What does it mean? Christ our God literally passed over homes of the Israelites or anyone who by faith killed the lamb, put the blood on the post, the side post and the door lintel, and that night when God went through and the death angel with him, and any house that did not have that blood, the firstborn in that house died that night, but anyone who by faith killed the lamb, applied the blood, God passed over and they were rescued alive and then God redeemed them out of Egypt and took them on to the promised land ultimately. It's the great picture, but it is called out in the New Testament. Let, don't miss that. Christ our Passover. Well, that does not make a lick of sense if you don't know what it means. So just real fast, let me show you a couple of tidbits in this that are interesting. In chapter 12, verse 3, speak to the count of Exodus now. 
Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his fathers, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. Uh, you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male the first year you will take it as the sheep from your own goat. It goes on to explain the why. Now, here's what I want you to not miss. In verse 3, underline the phrase in your Bible, a lamb. This is why the individual words of the Bible matter. We'll learn. We've learned that, and I want you to see it now. Why does this matter? Because God is always telling stories. Verse 3, Exodus 12, underline the phrase, a lamb. In verse 4, underline the phrase, the lamb. In verse 5, underline the phrase, your lamb. What's the story? Well, we know the Passover story in a bigger sense, but watch the personalization God does with this. A lamb is the acceptable sacrifice. He's already described that. The lamb is... Well, there's only one lamb that is really the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world that is the acceptable sacrifice, but it has to be your lamb in verse 5 in order for it to be personalized to you by faith. You receive the lamb who is the acceptable sacrifice for your sin. It's critical. And if you didn't apply the blood like they did at the Passover, if you've never applied the blood of Christ, meaning by faith I receive the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, then the blood of Christ is applied to you, and without the remission of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so this blood that was shed for you was the payment for your sin debt, but it must be applied to you. That is why Christ is our Passover. It is why he was sacrificed the weekend of the Passover. All the details surrounding everything about his crucifixion and ultimately resurrection surround the Passover and our redemption. So God is telling that story over and over and over again. It is why the rescue of Israel out of Egypt is the story that is repeated most often through your entire Old Testament. It is what Israel has always known to be their story. When they trace the roots of their stories over and over, it will go back to the days of Egypt and how God took them out of the slavery of Egypt, rescued them by the blood of the Lamb, and brought them into the promise. And it is the picture of our salvation in the New Testament. This next one, number three, a picture of Christ on the cross made sin for us. This is an incredible one. I want you to see the verbiage of it in the book of John, chapter three. Remember, this is when... Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, to, and Jesus explained to him about being born again. And so Jesus, speaking to a, a religious Pharisee, a man who would be schooled well in the Old Testament, he would understand and have memorized probably all of the first five books of the Bible. And so what Jesus is going to do is use an Old Testament picture story that he could understand. In John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Jesus said this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, key word, as. As. Like we learned last week, like and as. Jesus is going to illustrate something that we can understand. And so, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man lift it up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Q 
huge statement here to a, a Jewish religious leader who would know that story well. Here's the story. Go back to the book of Numbers. It's in your notes. You can see it, read it, and here's the story. The nation of Israel is in rebellion against God. They're in the wilderness time, and so they are whining and complaining about who knows what, and it's always something. God sends fiery serpents to judge them. Serpents are always a picture of Satan in the Bible and the judgment of God and sin. So they're bit. Just think of it this way. The people are getting bit by the sin bug or the sin serpent. So everyone, no one excluded, is being bitten. People are dying. The people then cry out to Moses, Oh, Moses, rescue us. Please call out to God. This has to stop. And Moses intercedes. Well, what they do is God tells Moses to take a brass serpent, place it on a pole, stand that pole up, and, and then when somebody let a people know, if you get bit by the stinging serpent, just turn and look at the pole. Look at that serpent on a stick. And you think, well, this is weird. This almost sounds like idolatry that they would even do it this way. Well, no, because what God was doing was snapshotting a picture so that Israel and all, all of us can see this. What does this mean? Well, you're taking and putting a serpent, which means sin. You're putting sin on a stick, which is why it's important to understand 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus, he became sin for us who knew no sin. He was sinless, but now became sin for us. And what did they do? They put him on a stick that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So sin on a stick becomes the Savior. But all you have to do is turn and look. By faith, believe what Moses said, and turn and look. But how often do we know that Jesus is the Savior, but oftentimes people won't turn and look? But this is an illustration. Jesus is giving a snapshot photo here of sin on a stick becomes a Savior. Now we know that symbol. It's actually a symbol throughout the world today that you see that pole and that serpent wrapped around the pole. You know, that was derived from this text. It's a symbol of healing because Israel experienced a great miraculous healing of God in this moment when people turned and looked at the serpent on the pole. So these are just pictures. And a picture is a snapshot of God telling his story. It could be the story of Christ coming to pay our sin debt, a story of the resurrection. It could be the story of his kingdom that is still to come. It's God is always telling his story over and over and over. So here's what I learned in this and and reading literally every story of the Bible, is there's, there's a picture type of a redeemer or a savior. There's oftentimes the picture of a, a, so let's just say it this way, a picture of a Christ figure, a picture of an antichrist or sin, salvation. Um, there's an antagonist. You see all these things that are happening. And so sometimes the pictures drill down into a detail that God's going to use later, that we see it play out in the New Testament somewhere, especially in the time of Christ. But uh, it's interesting uh, how this will open your entire Bible. Every name of every place will matter. Every river, every city, every person, what their name actually means will all of a sudden take on a whole new world here because God's going to use all of that as one big illustration that can be understood. Principle number 12. It's the principle of teaching by types. Types. Your understanding of this principle will open your Bible as few things can. It's similar to pictures, but types are just a little bit different. A type is simply a foreshadowing. 
a foreshadowing, a picture, an illustration, or another event, person, place, or item which comes to symbolize that person or thing. If, if we were naming this phenomenon in today's world of computers, we would call it an icon, the little icons. Those little things on your computer screen are just a symbol of something else. So history has quite a story to tell about icons that are used in Eastern Orthodox Christianity to represent certain spiritual symbols. So for example, when you travel, you look internationally for understood types or icons. You're going to find bathrooms and the money exchangers and information and a host of things are all illustrated internationally acceptable by icons. Well, it's the same way in your Bible. Once you learn these icons, it will expedite your Bible study process, but it will also open up a whole Pandora's box of understanding of what is God actually teaching here. Remember, there's three applications to Scripture. There's the history, what happened. It literally happened, what happened. The doctrine. The doctrine is God's teaching in regards to His kingdom. When you understand the pictures and the types, then it helps you to see what is actually God trying to teach here about his kingdom story? And then we derive an application from that to our lives of, well, what does this actually mean? So, as we look at this, in number five, we get our English types from the word typos, which literally means an ensample. Well, as long as we're right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let's see that word, but not just the word, but what was behind all that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is teaching the church of Corinth, and he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Well, there's a type. God just gave you the definitive term of a type. If I see the word rock in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, I realize now that is a type of Christ. He defined it for me. But now watch what happens in the story. I'm going to give you a way to experience this in a story form of a doctrine and application. You remember when Israel was struggling in the wilderness and they were complaining because, well, did God bring us out here that we would all die of thirst? And, and God told Moses to smite the rock. You're like, oh, well, good grief, the rock is Christ. Exactly. In order for the Lord Jesus Christ to nourish the nations with eternal life, with living water, like we learn in John 4, with the woman at the well, it's that living water that springs up from within. In order for the rock to produce this, Moses had to smite the rock. In other words, Jesus must be crucified in order for healing or for this living water to become our reality. But if you remember later, the children of Israel were complaining again about the lack of water. And they came to the rock, and God told Moses to speak to the rock. But Moses took his rod and he hit the rock again, and water did come out of it. But God told Moses, because you did not believe me and you hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, you will not go into the promised land. Joshua will lead them there. It won't be you. It's like, good grief, that was really harsh punishment. 
all he did was hit the rock and he'd done it before. So it's kind of like hitting the repeat cycle. Why is God being so mean? No, God's not being mean because there's a big picture here. If that rock is Christ and you smote the rock the first time to get the living water from the rock, we don't need to crucify Christ again and again and again and again. No, you speak to the rock. You know why that's a big deal? It has everything to do with even our eternal security. Because if Christ dying paid our sin debt once and for all, he doesn't need to be re-crucified to pay my sin debt again and again and again. No, I, I speak to the rock. I confess my sin. He is faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. But see, if we have this idea that I can lose my salvation somehow, well then to get it back, though how did I receive it the first time? I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I trusted him as the crucified one for my salvation, believing that his finished work on the cross was enough payment for my sin debt, game over. It is finished, right? Well, if I believe I could lose my salvation, then I guess Jesus needs to die again to pay my sin debt again because it wasn't adequate the first time. There's a huge teaching just in this illustration alone. Well, Paul's explaining all of this and explaining then the sinfulness of how Israel has this rock, has this spiritual food, which is the bread of life, which is Jesus, John chapter 6, by the way. But you get down and see in verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ if some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Remember, we just talked about that. Nor complain if some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happen to them as examples or in samples, which is literally a picture illustration. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And here's the instructional teaching. This is why. Why would God then give us all these illustrations of where people have literally failed and God had to execute judgment and where we can see it because you get to see the Redeemer, you get to see the consequence, but you also get an application. And Paul's now telling you, here's the application that you can derive from the text when you're reading all those Old Testament stories. Here's the, here's the application. Verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you read your Old Testament, and I've said this a hundred times, good grief, how could Israel be so stupid? They have all this right in front of them. How could they make these mistakes over and over again? Because it's the same thing I do. I need to probably get the speck out of my own eye so I can, you know, I've got this law, I should say the log in my own eye while I'm observing the speck in someone else's. I better take heed lest I fall. But here's the other application. No temptations overtaken you except such as common demand, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation also make the way of escape that you be able to bear it. Every time you see these scenarios happen in the Old Testament, what happens? God, yes, executes judgment, but he also makes the way of escape. And when you by faith believe God and walk the way of God, there's your escape every single time. You reject God's words, well, you, there's consequences. God says what he means, he means what he says. And so there's a consequence that bears out. And so let's continue. Page number 38 in your notes. Number six, biblical types develop a pattern throughout the Bible. You'll see these repeated over and over again. Types number seven are the key to understanding the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament is physical. The New Testament is spiritual. So it's almost like a, as Jesus taught, all these physical things become a spiritual reality than in a New Testament. Letter B, once you see the concept, you'll have little trouble seeing these throughout the Word, or throughout the Bible, sorry. Number one, for example, the sword is a type of the Bible. Well, these verses, I'll just quote them quickly to move on, but Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we now know the sword is likened unto the Word of God. It's a type of the Word, and it accomplishes some things. Ephesians 6, remember, Paul is describing the Roman uh, or the armor of God, but he uses a Roman soldier for the illustration of the helmet, the breastplate, the shield, and the boots, and all the stuff that he wears. But what's in his hand? And take unto you the sword of the Spirit, which is, he, he defines it, which is the Word of God. It is your weapon against sin. In Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes back, the sword that proceeds out of his mouth is literally called the word of God. He will smite the nations with his word. That means the authority of his power of his word is enough to conquer all the armies. And Psalm 149 then gives us the uh, application. It says, let the high praises of God be in their mouth in a two-edged sword in their hand. You know what? As a Christ follower, the, we should always have the sword in our hand. Our biggest error is when we lay our sword down and then we walk in our own way, in our own strength, in our own ideas, and that's when we usually get in big, big trouble. Number two, Egypt. The nation of Egypt is a type of the world. In Exodus chapter 22 and all those illustrative points, um, I'll just pick one quickly. I'll use Hebrews 11 since I'm already sitting here in the New Testament, but all of those, you can go see them. But it's not hard to understand this. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 13, says, And these all died, it's the hall of faith, talking about all the people who walk by faith and um, live God's way. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And they walked away from Egypt. That actually, I think, should have been a different verse. Hang on one second. Because Moses, he's the guy who's going to reject it. Yeah. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Well, who was the king? King of Egypt. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked at the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath. Well, what's the point? Egypt is illustrated or is a type of sin and the enslavement. So that's why it's such a big deal of the Passover repeated that story so many times through the Bible is God takes a group of people rescues them out of the bondage of slavery to sin, and he rescues them by the blood of the Lamb unto a promise, the promised land. And that picture and type just gets repeated over and over. So every time I see the word Egypt in my Bible, I'm put on notice. I'm This is a picture of sin. Classic example of this, remember when in Genesis chapter 12, 
when Abraham is called out by God to leave Ur of the Chaldees. So he's a pagan man leaving his other Gentile friends and family behind, and he packs up and goes. He's walking with God by faith to a place he has no clue where he's going, but God said, I'll show you. He gets down the road a ways, and a famine hits, and instead of trusting God, where does he go? He goes down to Egypt. Here's a phrase for you. You'll, you'll see this often in Scripture. People go down to Egypt. You're always going down. When people choose to go to Egypt, they're going by their own strength, their own power, their own way. They're going to the bondage of sin. They're returning back to the slavery of sin. That's what happened with Abraham. He went on his own accord, and then all the trouble came. He finally realized where he was at and then went back to the place where he left God. And then God picks up, and they move on down the road again. But he, he gave himself over unto his own devices and his own way of thinking by going to Egypt. All right, now I'll move on. Number three, Jeremiah and Paul are both types of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Now, remember this in Revelation. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in Revelation chapter 7 and also chapter 14. The church has now been removed off the scene in Revelation. We are now dealing with the tribulation time frame. God is specifically dealing with the nation of Israel. There's no question of that, and from my vantage point, at least when I observe my Bible, um, because you don't see the name church happening again here. But in chapter 7, if you'll look, there's in verse 4, he said, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, and all of the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And God takes, and I'm not going to read all that, but God takes and seals them unto a mission and purpose. And those 144,000 Jews from Israel are going to be like Apostle Paul types all over the globe proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and many get saved. Verse 9, look at this thing. After these I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne of God before the Lamb, clothed with bright white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels all stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Well, who are these arrayed in the white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, here's what happens. You see this. The 144,000 go proclaiming the gospel message of Jesus Christ in every kindred, nation, tribe, and tongue. And people get saved like crazy during this time frame. They also die for their faith. And so Jeremiah in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament are types of these 144,000 Jews. Well, why is that so? Well, look, Jeremiah, letter A, is the only man specifically told not to marry. Well, that's what part of the criteria was um, for these guys that are in Revelation chapter 7 and chapter 14. If you look at chapter 14, they are given this information about their qualifications. Um, I'm looking here. 
Verse 4 says, these are the ones, 14.4, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Okay? So this is identifying these 144,000. Jeremiah would have met that description. He preached while he was in captivity. We know that. He was a prophet to the nations, plural, to all the nations, not just to Israel, but he was giving intel to all the nations, even those that are oppressing Israel. In the same manner, Paul conducted his ministry unmarried. We learn that from 1 Corinthians 7. Paul had a miraculous conversion. He describes himself as a man born out of due time. It's like he was born out of season. And when he's describing that, he's not only an apostle who was not really an eyewitness like Peter, James, and John eyewitness of the resurrection, but he got to see Jesus, the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. But what he's actually describing is this. He's like the 144,000. He's like a man born out of the wrong time or out of due time. He's a witness to the Gentiles. He preached primarily to the Gentiles. Paul was persecuted and assassinated by Rome, which is what happens to the followers of Christ. It will be the Roman Empire in the spiritual sense that will be the heavy persecutor during the tribulation time frame, and we'll study that at another day. Number four, wine is also a type of blood, and this is, this is pretty easy to see. Um, the first public miracle in the Old Testament was water being turned to blood. Um, you remember in Moses' day, how is he going to validate that he has any kind of authority to stand in front of the nation, and God told him to, you know, smite the waters with the rod, and it turned to blood. And now everybody's like, wow, this guy's legit. He's got some power. Well, and letter B in your notes says the first public miracle in the New Testament of Jesus from John chapter 2 was when he turned water into wine. And so this wine then becomes a type of blood. So what happens? When I see wine in the Bible or blood, there's similitude in those things, but God's telling another story, and I need to pay attention. There's a type happening here. Another obvious one would be leprosy. Leprosy is a type of sin. We know that in Leviticus 13 and 14 talks about how do you deal with someone with leprosy. It's a, it's a skin disease, and you don't, it's very infectious and contagious, I should say. And so um, stay away. They would always cast the lepers outside of the city. But miraculously, if a leper was healed of his leprosy, he would have to go to the priest. The priest would confirm he has been healed. And, well, that's why whenever Jesus miraculously healed the lepers in the New Testament, he said, don't tell anyone, go directly to the priest and tell them what's happened, and they can inspect you and declare you clean. Jesus was fulfilling the law with those guys. But leprosy is also seen as a picture of sin because it is the contaminant of our flesh, and it can only be healed by obedience and faith. Remember when the uh, military general Naaman, who um, in the Old Testament was sick with leprosy, the prophet had come to him and sent word, go wash in the Jordan River. Yeah, I'm not going to wash in the Jordan River. Compared to the rivers of our land, the Jordan River is junk. I'm not going to do that. Well, his servants finally were like, hey, boss, um, you know, all of the ideas you have are not working. The prophet says, go wash in the Jordan River and you'll be cleansed. And Naaman goes down, finally gets in the Jordan River by faith washes himself seven times and comes up out of the water the seventh time, cleansed. How did that happen? Well, it was obviously a miracle of God, but by faith, 
he believed God and was cleansed of his unrighteousness or the illustration of sin. If you go to the back of your book, Appendix C and Appendix D gives you a list of additional types throughout your Bible. Look at C and D, and I'm not going to read through and study all these with you or we'll be here forever. But look at them on Appendix C. You have these major types of Christ with individuals in your Bible. And then you have the Antichrist, those that will be the antagonist, the opposite. And those are throughout the Bible. So God's going to tell you the, the Christ story throughout these, with, with these people's lives. If you look at the next page, Appendix D, well, now you not only have people, but you have stuff, things, that God uses to illustrate certain things as types so that we can understand and he can draw you word pictures and illustrate things that are consistent from Genesis to Revelation God telling his story again and again and again. Do you have to memorize all these? No, but I will tell you, keep this list handy when you're doing your Bible study. Pay attention to the individual words. Kind of go back and check and see. And what will happen in due time, you will kind of memorize this whole list and see um, how this plays out because it, the Bible's so consistent. And so when you drill down and do a word study on any particular matter, you'll come to the same conclusion and it'll really bless you because it'll open up, well, what is this historical lesson actually teaching me about his kingdom? And now what can I do with this to how to live out God's word for my own life every day? So major pictures and types of your Bible, great uh, lesson tonight. I, this, like I told you, this is one of that changed my whole Bible study and just kind of lit me up the first time I heard this. So I hope this will help you in your study. We'll pick up in person next time, barring another weather or bizarre event. And I look forward to that. And I make sure if you have questions, you bring them and we'll catch kind of back up together of anything we've covered that maybe I've messed up on along the way. And we'll, we'll proceed. Hope you have a great week. See you next time.